Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Chad. You're listening to Mission Daily, and today's guest is none other than John Underkoffler. John is the CEO of Oblong Industries, a company that recently went public. We talk about that in the episode. They went public in a fascinating reverse merger scenario. So if you've never heard of that, I know I hadn't. I learned a lot, and you're going to learn so much more from John. John started his career at, uh, well, way before then, I guess when he was born, but he also started it at MIT Media Lab, where he pioneered some of the earliest visions and technologies for augmented reality and new user interfaces. You might have seen some of these in the movie Minority Report that he was a major part of. And we talk about that. We talk about philosophy, favorite science fiction authors, a little bit about Rene Girard, an interesting Stanford-based philosopher, and so much more in today's episode. So if you're interested in the future of collaboration, small teams, and what comes after the user interface, you'll love today's episode. Tune in. Time to pay the creatives and media makers at Mission. We couldn't do it without a world-class sponsor and ally whose services we use, Trinet. As a business owner, you can't be afraid to outsource what you're not good at. I'm a creative who gets paid to talk, but there is a lot I'm not good at, like complex HR issues. That's why I outsource my HR challenges to the experts at Trinet. Their experts in software help us at mission with payroll, benefits, compliance, and more. And Trinet offers full-service HR solutions tailored to your industry. Whether your team is 10 people or 1,000, Trinet has you covered. Help support Mission Daily and check out Trinet for your HR needs today. John, welcome back to the show. Great to be back. Thanks for tolerating me a second time. Always, always. We first connected back in, I think, last summer. We were talking earlier before we started recording. and We did. Yeah, time's flown. Time has flown. Uh, it's unbelievable how much has happened. The listeners, of course, can't tell, but I do think that you've developed some facial hair in the intervening months. <laughs> I have. I have. I've been in the wilderness, both figuratively and literally. And so the facial hair is uh, hopefully going to protect me. Well, I'm, I, I approve for what little or zero <laughs> that that's worth. I, I hope the rest of your family does. Yes. Yes, they do. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I know there's been a lot on your plate. Mm. You've been, I guess, at the top of the list was the reverse merger. You're Discussing on the phone? Uh, yeah, that's right. So we, uh, in October 1st, in fact, Oblong and a Denver-based publicly traded company called Glowpoint executed a merger. And so up until that time, of course, Oblong had been privately held, sort of fairly standard venture-backed organization from the kind of fiscal and, and organizational point of view. But there was one last bit of growing up in some sense that we needed to do. And that has been achieved through this merger, which overall, I think, is proving to be a, an immensely successful one. But of course, only time will tell. And just, uh, just this Monday, in fact, the ticker symbol changed to OBLG. So that's, you know, that's exciting. If nothing else, it's something my mom can look at. Dollar OBLG. I love it. And this is very exciting, I'm sure, for the future of the company, because as you mentioned, this is going to allow you to focus on some things that are in your core wheelhouse, right. core skill set. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about that? And maybe for folks that are listening in for the first time, they didn't catch the first interview, what is Oblong and what the hell are you up to? Right. Our story to date, <laughs> last, last week, last year on Oblong. So Oblong Industries, now simply Oblong Inc., is a 
is a technology company that I started in 2006, 2004 really, but 2006 we incorporated as Oblong, really to put into commercial and real world practice a set of ideas, a set of, I think, fundamental ideas that I've been chasing since the late, early, late 80s, early 90s, around the idea of user interface as an understudied, under-acknowledged, but absolutely primal and critical bit of the technological and digital experience. One that, again, as I've suggested, you know, hasn't seen nearly enough development, hasn't seen nearly enough innovation, and that, from my point of view, we can get into this later, actually represents further stagnation in the field of UI represents a kind of existential threat to humankind. I know that sounds very grand, but we'll talk about why I think that. Anyway, I, I pursued that at MIT at the Media Lab through a number of degrees and a number of years that displeased my parents greatly. And then I pulled that set of ideas into the film Minority Report, which was a, just a tremendous opportunity to place the, the ideas that I thought were most important kind of in front of a, a very large number of human eyes to kind of implicitly ask the question, what do you think about a future where computation doesn't necessarily mean a mouse and keyboard? And I guess the third step was that uh, partly in response to the to a very enthusiastic, both public and corporate reception of those ideas as depicted in the film, I started Oblong to, to turn them into reality. Uh, today, Oblong's principal activities are, are two, really. On the product side, we make a thing called Mezzanine. It's a product family of in-room and remote collaboration tools. It is a collaboration tool. That, that word is kind of debauched at this point. It, it's one of those words that's so, so much used that it's kind of lost a lot of meaning. But mezzanine and oblong means collaboration the way I mean it, which is real collaboration. Like, what would you do in the real world if you had to work with a bunch of other people? And that's what mezzanine does. So it's much more about the content, about the documents, the applications, the data, getting that up on a lot of screens in addition to the faces, which is what everyone else means by collaboration, faces and voices only, essentially, and maybe a single PowerPoint. Mezzanine says, no, really, the value, the work resides in the stuff, the data, the apps, the applications, the, the documents, the images, whatever, and more than one at the same time. So it's not enough just to see, you know, the CEO's PowerPoint, heaven help us. Let's not see that at all. Ideally, if we're working, what we want to see is a spreadsheet, but not just alone. We want to see the spreadsheet next to the project plan, next to the CAD model, next to the, you know, the social media streaming analysis, blah, blah, blah all of the bits and pieces that make up the kind of hive mind of the work process, if you will. Right. So that's Mezzanine. Today it's deployed, uh, there's over a thousand deployments literally on six continents. We haven't gotten to Antarctica yet, but maybe someday, maybe the Ross Ice Shelf, if it hasn't completely dried up and fallen off, uh, we'll see one. McMurdo Station probably has a few people in it. And then the other side of the house is both the called G-Speak, that is kind of the minority report operating system effectively, and a set of incredibly talented designers and engineers who can build custom solutions, usually around data navigation and kind of joint collaborative understanding of massive problem spaces for domain-specific applications for particular customers who want to go really, really deep with this idea of UI. I think what's so fascinating about this is this is moving us to a place where we're going to be able to show each other what we mean instead of using just small mouth noises. It's going to move us to a place of communication where it's collaborative in a sense of we're going to be able to communicate for perhaps the first time because, you know, we think that we're communicating now, but everyone's internal dictionary doesn't necessarily match up to our own. 
uh, people define words different ways, things like that. So this takes us to a realm beyond text, beyond just pictures into combining them together. So almost like a more perfect logos, right? I love that. In fact, with your permission, we should put it into practice over on the PR side of the house immediately. Billboards. It's, it's great stuff, yeah. But and, and I think you're it. exactly right. I mean, it's not that language is underpowered. It's tremendously efficacious and it's wired into some of the deep, deepest but more recently developed parts of our brain. But there's another whole side that's spatial, that's pictorial, diagrammatic almost. And I like your show because that's really what it is. So the act of collaborative seeing, having everyone sit in a room or in a bunch of connected rooms and see exactly the same thing at the same time, the same way. But the other side of this, of the see, the collaborative see, is to show. And in some sense, I think by, by starting Oblong, by, by creating mezzanine, I'm kind of compensating for the fact that although I can write, although I have literacy in the literal version, literal sense of that word, I'm illiterate when it comes to drawing. Uh, my son is a phenomenal artist and it's magic for me to watch what he can express just out the, <laughs> out the, the business end of a stylus. But I can't do that. And in, I think in a way, this is, for me, mezzanine and related technologies are like a brain projector, a way to, to get out the ideas that I have in my mind that are not best, and not my mind, everyone's mind, that are not best described by language. So I, I really dig your analysis there. And I think it's something that you alluded to it earlier. Existential threats are not going to be solved until we can translate the visions that we have for solutions because they're yeah. so much more you know nuanced and sophisticated than just our small mouth noises would allude to. They are almost certain people and certain artists have been said to, you know, see an entire song or see a completed film. And it's, you know, we don't have the mind brain interfaces yet, but I feel like this is a very strong step towards being able to starting to collaborate on these existential challenges. Right. And that's it. it's uh, giving everyone kind of, you know, augmented communication tools to get on the same page. And Bingo. we all have weaknesses, right? Yeah. So yeah, this is a way to start bridging the gap. So that's exactly right. And I think the time is now, right? I mean, the, the set of challenges, both, you know, perilous and mortal and exciting and opportunistic that confront us in the 21st century are exist at a scale and a scope that is unprecedented in human history. Like there's just more complicated stuff we've got to solve now and that we should be solving. And we're not going to do it. The myth of the sort of lone, isolated genius is one that I think we can, I would love to get rid of here in this century. Yeah. Like it doesn't, Individuals are, are capable of doing great things individually, but not, again, at the scale and, and the scope that the world's biggest problems need solving at. Completely. Yeah, it's uh, going to take teams and teams of teams. And that's you know what we see right now with the remote work epidemic. It's exciting times for all of this. So yeah, exactly. what else outside of work? I'm, I'm curious, have you been up to? Have you been thinking about? Yeah, what are some of the tangents that you've taken to keep that steady stream of creativity rolling? Well, there's, there's two more big pieces that are kind of uh, occupying big sectors of what's left of my sad little brain these days. One <laughs> is that in the very late 2018, early 2019, uh, presumably through the usual series of clerical errors, I became a curator at large for New York City's Museum of Arts and Design. And the curator at large thing is, a relative, I think, a relatively new category. And what it means is that you're a curator, you're responsible for developing and uh, shows, exhibitions, but that you don't uh, reside at, or strictly speaking, work for the museum. And indeed, here I am in Los Angeles and New York is in New York. But I'm really excited about that. I owe them a major show in March of 2022. I've got the broad strokes put together and it's going to be 
it will, in essence, be the largest scale deployment of Oblong's ideas and my ideas ever realized. It'll occupy two floors, probably 6,000 square feet. And it, it's thematically, awesome. it's about it's about a couple of things. One is that it's, it's an attempt on my part to externalize the excitement that you feel when you wander into a new domain. You know, you'd heard about it, but you didn't really, you had no exposure to crowd rock, let's say. And all of a sudden, oh my gosh, you, you, I'm not saying one way or another whether anyone in particular likes crowd rock, but you know, you've got, you're a music lover, you, you're well-versed in all these other categories, and suddenly this whole new vista opens up. And that excitement where you dive in and you learn everything you can and you get the albums I can and, uh, and everyone else, you know, and whatever the domain is, whether it's art history or music or cinema or science or whatever your thing is, like people have that experience of being a kind of secular expert at something and then finding a new continent, basically. So the exhibition is, a, is about that experience, of course, trying to induce it artificially induce it or assist it. How about that? That's a, that's a nicer phrase. I love it. In the domain of art history for people who might otherwise not have access to that. And it's an antidote, a, re- a remedy really for the, the 20th century view of museums, which is here's a piece of art. Here's a little three by five card tacked to the wall with some stuff that you should read, you know, and that's the full experience. So instead, exploratory thing where you find connections and go as deep as you want in whatever direction you want. And you're kind of curating your own set, your own knowledge base in real time as you go through the thing. And of course, it's spatially UI mediated and there's pixels everywhere on all the walls and it should be, it should be a blast. So that's fascinating. So that's coming up 24 months from now. That seems like a long time, but it's a terrifyingly short time. But what I intend by it is just yet another kind of unfolding of the compact origami that we've got to get to the inside of, you know, another way a way to push, to turn the engine of UI innovation over one more time and, and see what comes out. That's really exciting because so often we are accustomed of thinking about art in, you know, this thing on a wall yep. or this digital medium that's still, you know, confined to this screen when in our minds and in non-ordinary states of consciousness, we experience arguably more art than any wall or any museum could contain. So this is a, a really exciting step towards a direction of you know, interactivity yeah. and moving through artistic experiences. So, John, when you are going through your day-to-day now and the company has become what it's become, I'm really curious, was it what you envisioned? Was it so much more? How is it different from your early aspirations? And is there a disappointment gap? Is there, mm-hmm. is it just complicated? How do you begin to articulate, you know, that experience of, having this in your mind so many decades ago and now realizing it. What's that like? I'm going to tread gingerly here because now we're publicly traded and I don't even fully understand what, uh, <laughs> what being on the record with, with an answer to questions like that may entail. I'm, I'm kidding mostly. Sure. But, uh, it's complex. It really is. One of the best things for me is, of course, the people. I mean, people build companies in different ways. People have different you know, theories and or innate and instinctual ways of bringing people together and, and sort of setting the stage for different kinds of behaviors. And for me, that's been the biggest reward in a sense is to work with such an astoundingly talented and fascinating and by and large, very funny group of people over so many years. You know, it's an, a living organism as well, which just like your own body changes out more of its cells than it retains if you, if you wait long enough. But the organism itself can be a relatively stable 
in, in terms of temperament and intent can be a stable thing. And so that's, that's been fantastic. I've been doing a lot of thinking in the last six months about companies, about human organizational structures more generally, but about the role that companies play and the kinds of things that, that companies are good for and not as good at. In fact, this has become a <laughs> kind of an obsession, an obsessional topic for me lately because it's really, really hard for any company to maintain what we could reasonably, any, you know, what, what we could reasonably call innovation. The most successful companies have an idea or a handful of ideas. They get reduced to practice in the form of a product or products. And things slow down then. In fact, in a way, the more successful things are, the more they're forced to slow down and improvements become extremely incremental. And even ridiculously successful companies, at least in a fiscal sense like Google, have a really, really hard time inventing new stuff and innovating. In fact, I think this was a tangential topic for us last time we talked. You had some fascinating statistic about this, in fact, being the least innovative in, in recent history, if I if I don't misremember, yeah. can you pull that back there are many difference. Yeah, there's many different statistics, but generally if you look at travel time, so travel time has slowed down yeah. to where it was in the 50s. Okay. If you look at the Bay Bridge, which is like my favorite example, it was completed in about 18 months. And now a small access road near the Bay Bridge has taken half a decade or more. Right. And it's very alarming when you start to consider how hard it is to accomplish things in the real world now, which leads me to believe that it's mainly a communication, persuasion, and vision issue where we're all, you know, complexity has exploded and we're not all on the same page in terms of what we're talking about or how to get things done anymore. I think you're right. And I would add to that list of subcomponents, the, the superset of, again, human organizational structure. I think we don't have the right organizational structures in place. You know, we've, we've basically got companies, we've got nations, which are maybe represented sort of by governance, which certainly exert a lot of control. We've got, that's kind of it. We've got a bit of religion, which I think you and I are going to end up talking about to some extent today. And we have smaller affinity groups and, and interest units. But I think that, that that set of building blocks is no longer sufficient. So this is I the thing that's, agree more. that's been occupying me without, without cease. And I'm starting to, <laughs> I'm actually starting to put together a set of ideas that I'll try to put into action sometime soon around what a different way of plugging components together might be that would necessarily be, I think you would, you'd have to say post-capitalist, but not anti-capitalist. Sure, sure. We need something that's, I mean, I think it would be hard to argue against the idea that the current regime of effectively unbridled capitalism, the governor has been ripped off the mechanism, the, the reins have been dropped, right? It's just, and it is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And the consequence is that the the nose of the craft that is human civilization is kind of pointing at the ground. So I don't know that we can survive really, as a species or as this version of the species a whole many more decades of this version. So, but the answer is not going to be found, I'm certain, in any of the, the existing alternatives to governmental structure, let's say, or social organization. It's got to be something new. Agreed. I think it's going to have to be modeled after the systems that are the oldest around us, which you alluded to earlier, which was biology and, you know, our, our cells, they, we shut off old ones. We have DNA where new DNA, we can go through epigenetic changes. And I'm reading a book right now about intergenerational trauma, doing some, mm. doing some self-work. And there's just this fascinating research that of uh, this body of research that's growing that kind of points us in this direction where 
the systems we have now, they have to start going epi. They have to yes. start evolving. Yes. Otherwise, they're, you know, we're using the rearview mirror to try to get to the future and it's not going to take us there. So that's a great, I, I think, segue into how do we start to, you know, is it by sharing these ideas? Is it by talking about them? Or is it like you mentioned, you know, designing these things in small groups on our own and launching experiments? What's the path forward here? I think it's the latter. I think it is necessarily, it has to start with small groups, right? You can't, this, yes. the answer can't come out of just individual coming up with a bunch of stuff. I think it's going to necessarily take the interchange of ideas. For, I have a strong intuition that, you know, it, that the correct unit is sort of eight to 12 people. And these eight to 12 people are themselves, presumably, in my version of things, leaders of different kinds of organizational units and whether those are companies or investment vehicles or art movements or, you know, yeah, any of the countless other, well, countable, but large, you know, number of other things that humans get up to in, in plurality. And I think all you need is for each group of eight to 13 to agree on a couple of key principles, but these are foundational principles. These are principles like what actually is the purpose of human life, right? Like if you, right. we don't like to talk about that, especially as Americans, we really don't like to talk about that kind of thing. And yet if that doesn't undergird the real answer to every question that we have, you know, at, at least a kind of organizational, structural or political level, I don't, I don't know what should. So uh, I think you yeah. can get groups of people together like that who themselves represent organizations one organization per person that is presumably like-minded in temperament, in aggregate temperament. And then you can figure out a way to plug these units together, you know, and basically invent tendons and sinew and ligaments of the between them of, of a superorganism. That's where I think it lies. And you obliquely alluded to this. I think we're, you know, we're suffering from a kind of post-industrial revolution model of the world that is mechanistic. It's infantilized. It's, you know, the assumption that there's a single principle or a single, uh, single equation or a single, whatever it is. I spent a lot of time talking with Joey Ito, who one of whose rallying cries is, uh, well, I mean, it's the title of a book that he wrote called Res resisting reduction and implicitly resisting reductionism. Somehow, you know, the idea of systems thinking, kind of bubbled up in the 50s and 60s, and that's the right direction. And then I think for not good reasons, it kind of subsided again. And we've, we've lost that ability to think about complex systems that interact and to even have that as our mental model for how the world works. And yet, of course, that's how it works. Hey, everybody. We're taking a time out to thank Trinet for sponsoring independent media like Mission Daily. If there's one thing I am about, and in fact... One thing the whole mission team is about, you know that it's accelerated learning. One of the ways I do that is by learning from the best. When it comes to learning about HR, the team and resources Trinet provides are my go-to source. I got started with some of Trinet's free e-guides at trinet.com slash e-guide. You can too. It's never been easier to get briefed on how to outsource your HR, grow and scale effectively, offer the benefits that matter to your team, and win the war for talent. Start learning from the best and get one of Trinet's free e-guides at trinet.com slash e-guide. Thanks, Trinet, for sponsoring Mission Daily.
in order to create a safe space to discuss these things yeah. and help a lot of American listeners and from the West feel comfortable about this, right. we can just d- define religion from an anthropological sense and start to look at it that way as a collection of daily habits and mm. unexamined and examined rituals. And from that sense, I think it, it was one of my favorite sci-fi authors would he was just saying like, you know, everyone has a religion, you know, but it's just not clearly articulated. They might not be able to see it. They might think that there's something else, but all of our inputs and daily outputs, in a sense, compromise our own individual religion and measuring that and getting from an N of one to Hmm. comparing it to, you know, an N of many is very complex. But if we think about it that way, it kind of takes and creates a safe space where it's not as much about dogma as it is about what are you actually doing each day? And what are, what are other people doing and how can we get these groups of eight to 13 leaders aligned on actions in a sense where all their actions might not have to be public. Maybe they can just be private in the group. And then there's some type of information sharing between the groups or whatever that each group consents to, to allow for, you know, islands among the groups of experimentation. But that's kind of like the the way that I approach these topics is to take off the the dogma and our old ideas of what religion is and like nobody's guilty. Let's start thinking about this from a scientific perspective and an anthropological sense. Is that how you approach this? I think that's spot on. We all have to think like anthropologists, like you have to climb up out of the little, you know, hemisphere that we're all trapped in and stand on top of it or stand on top of yeah. a hill nearby so you can actually see what's going on. One question though, is this favorite sci-fi author going to remain unnamed? <laughs> <laughs> I was... I was blanking between who actually oh, okay. uh, said it that, that everyone had a religion. So yeah, I, I don't want to. Fine, we'll, we'll figure it out. But yeah, I mean, we, we talked about it earlier, but yeah, one of my favorite sci-fi authors by and large, uh, Philip K. Dick, of course. huge fan. Then of course, we'll do the Silicon Valley standard, Neil Stevenson. And Peter Watts has been a, a recent favorite. I'm not sure huh, if you're familiar I haven't with read him. Yet. Echopraxia is a book, which is echopraxia is a term for uh, unconscious imitation, which- uh Uh-oh. Brings us I know to where that gets us. Philosopher Rene Girard. Yeah, that gets us to <laughs> mimetic desire, mimetic mimicry. Uh, sorry for this. Yes. Tautological mimetic. Yes. Uh, what's the other one? Mimetic desire and mimetic theory, basically. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And uh, scapegoat mechanism. The scapegoat mechanism. So, yeah. you're, are you familiar? Did you a little uh, bit? Yeah. You, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It's um. So I just wanted to write down the the title of that book that you uh, recommended. What is it? Echopraxia. Echopraxia. By Peter Watts. Great. Yeah, he's a bit. It's a bit dark, but his work is, uh, yeah, it, it's very interesting. Dark is good. And that's fine. Yes. So we're talking, you know, we're talking, mentioned Gerard there, philosopher. And so from a philosophical standpoint, I think the fact that these conversations are occurring now and people yeah. can listen to them and, and tune in and chime in, it's a very exciting time in history because previously it was very hard to find like find the others that's right. that were thinking like this or, or think it, it, the search costs were so enormous. So now as the search car costs start to fall, we can go from a world where, you know, there's only a handful of people that have ever heard of Gerard to now that people can like find this and, and circle in on it and kind of the gravity can pull them in, which is ex- exciting. But when it comes to these topics and, and Gerard and sci-fi authors, who do you think kind of has their finger on the pulse of solutions for this? Or are there any creators out there that you feel were just so far ahead of the culture or that they kind of like got this instinctively? Well, like you, I'm an inordinate fan of, of Dick, of Phil Dick. His stuff tends to be more analytic than prescriptive. <laughs> like he's not, he's not really offering a way out. There's not really a moment when you can ignore William Gibson, but I 
think that after Neuromancer, sure. his finest work is The Peripheral, the, whose successor just came out a couple of weeks ago, and I haven't gotten into it yet. But, but The Peripheral kind of diagnoses, <laughs> well, it's a pretty vivid depiction of what might happen in the next 10, 20, 30 years. But I don't, uh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have a good answer. I mean, I think that I was, actually just yesterday, I was thinking of Stevenson and Snow Crash and his idea of the kind of fractured organization of the United States in which there are, you know, hundreds of governments that are kind of affinity groups, including the vestiges of the original U.S. government. It's like the group of people that are just love, love the idea of being a civil servant and love civil service. And, and so, you know, he deploys that kind of in comic territory, but it's also maybe not a bad model to develop further. So, yeah. What about PKD's exegesis or some of the nonfiction writing from sci-fi authors? Because I think this is where we get closer to some of the things that they were scared to put in their writing from an exoteric standpoint, and they had to approach Mm. in more esoteric ways. I don't know if you've had a chance to check out the exegesis, which is a lot of mad ranting, but it's also some genius insights about, you know, how culturally we're still, PKD thought we were in like AD 74, that nothing had really changed, that the empire never ended. And in a sense with, you know, different nation states rising and falling and then their best scientists getting transferred over, it's kind of like that Orwellian view of like the names change, but the, maybe the empire never ended. Mm. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I haven't made it that far into the exegesis. I mean, it's, it's hard to get access to the full multi-thousand page version, but there's that nice Jonathan Latham introduced yeah. hardback that came out a couple of years ago. I'm halfway through Radio Free Albemuth actually right now, which nice. is, I guess, the, the prototype for Vallis that went unpublished until after his death. Yeah. So those, uh, well, it's interesting because, you know, those texts at the end of his life were all written when Dick himself was going through kind of psychological trauma that was pretty intense, even for Phil K. Dick, right? So, (laughs) you know, the the pink light experience and and all of that stuff, which is interesting to think about. And, you know, the way that personal experience sort of catalyzes thought gets transmuted into into action sometimes i don't know if it's admissible territory but in sure correspondence before this you and i were talking a little bit about some of your own recent experiences and it feels to me like that's inflected a, a lot of your own <laughs> thinking in the, in the six short months since we've spoken is that something is. Uh, is that something we would like to talk about here <laughs> yeah sure sure open to open to discussing it it's got to get more practice with it i think because communication kind of fails us Mm -hmm. that the more I talk with other people and different therapists and medical doctors and psychotherapists that have been doing work with psychedelic medicine for decades now, the more I'm certain that there are in fact many different, you know, varieties of religious experience Mm -hmm. or experience that is very difficult to put into words and approaching different authors who are brave enough to be honest about their own allows, I think it allowed me to see, okay, there is going to be this period of scapegoating where when you open up about the topic. However, if you've constructed your group around you of the, you know, eight or 13, and you've been wise enough about the construction of it, the scapegoating won't be fatal. In most of human history, though, the scapegoating has been fatal to the individuals who tried to discuss or talk about these psychological challenges or experiences or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. 
we now have appeared, appeared to enter this time period where it's possible to live through them, to live through them and not have the group turn. <laughs> Non-lethal <completely>. scapegoating. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the scapegoating is in fact, our, we're hardwired to feel like it is going to be fatal, right. like that discussing these topics is going to kill us because in the past it did. In the past, it cut off our ancestors and resources economically, yeah. prevented us from ever having children or, you know, very horrible things like that. And that memory is still in our genetics. And it's very, very hard to escape. Well, it's, so, it's also manifested implicitly in the epigenetics of of all the social constructs around us, right? Like the strong completely. persuasion from broaching any of these topics or, you know, yes. or experimenting yes. and so forth. Yes. And that type of cultural nudging or silencing of free speech, mm-hmm. I think, is still almost invisible, especially when each of us are operating in these like social panopticons, I think is the right <laughs> word of that we've we've inadvertently created where the panopticon that I had created for myself didn't become apparent until I would say, you know, over the last couple of years, I became more and more aware of how much I had been censoring myself yeah. and how much I had been keeping back. And so as I started to deconstruct it and get out of it and get to a place where it was, I was sharing more freely and more mm-hmm. honestly with the help of professionals yeah. and now with the help of medicine, it's almost like there's been a veil on my yeah. world and the veil's lifting and it's a much more friendly place than I've been led to believe. And of course, this is like PTSD and okay. this is as the reduction of symptoms happen, it's not even a world that I recognize. Though. You're saying the world itself and, as it's being revealed as the gauze parts is, is more friendly, is turning out to be more friendly than you'd perceived before. It's completely more friendly yeah. to an extent where, you know, earlier there would be one sentence somebody would say yeah. would not, I wouldn't even be conscious of it. I would, you know, mishear it, or it would be from such a defensive posture that I would tighten up and have to just physically distance wow. myself or get away from that person. Okay. And it's, it's not that I was mishearing things. It was, it's a little bit of that, but it's also something that these were in my mind, the starting point of scapegoating. And the, I would see like these small cultural nudges as not just benign things of, oh, somebody misspoke or something. It was something that I saw where in the next couple years, if the trajectory of this relationship continued, I would kind of extrapolate in my mind to see how this person might turn against me. Wow. And you could say, oh, this is just like paranoia. This is hypervigilance. However, in the past and in the military, this is where, and before that too, because I think my PTSD probably started when I was a child, wow. as, best I can, as best I can tell, it's protected me in the past. Hmm. The timing and the exact, you know, oh, is this person going to like turn on me in a couple of years or whatever? Maybe that's been off a bit, but there have been a couple instances where it's been right. So there's this, you know, human desire to kind of like hold on to them. Sure. And so it's, I don't know, it's complicated and I'll uh, shut up my rant No, there. no, no, no. But it's fascinating. Yeah. So right now, you know, we, we mentioned I was uh, in the process of ketamine assisted psychotherapy Wow. that leads into a MDMA assisted therapy that mirrors the most efficacious MAP studies okay. for treating PTSD. And so I'm in that. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Ketamine is a dissociative, if I don't uh, misremember. Yeah, it qualifies as that. And then it was just used for treating pain. uh, Right. So, yeah. And yes, and that disassociation is something that the community isn't quite. There's some folks on the fence of like, oh, that's incredibly dangerous. And then some are on the fence of it's actually the most helpful thing in the world because you can start to get a vantage point on yourself that is not what others say you are 
but it's what you see yourself as from a dissociated standpoint, which is very helpful because that type of self-awareness is, you know, when we take a picture of ourselves, it's not like we look in a mirror, you know, it's like, you know, verse it's it's different. And yeah, so I'm just going through that process now. And the whole, you know, PKD was obsessed with the Paul's quote of, for now we see through a glass darkly. And it feels like healing intergenerational trauma and PTSD and our own baggage from the past is going to be possible at scale for humanity Mm -hmm. for the first time ever, because these medicines are so cheap that the second they, that the second that MDMA gets past the clinical phase three trials that it's in right now, and it really starts rolling, we're going to be able to have a world for the first time in history where those that opt into clearing not only their trauma, but the intergenerational trauma of the past, which it appears that PTSD can be fixed with Matt, with MDMA with, you know, we might have a completely different world where, you know, we don't have these individuals that are, you know, supposedly high functioning, they're going around, going to work and things, but they're traumatized and don't even know it because they haven't had a vantage point outside themselves right. or any perspective. So, yeah. Now, presumably the pharmacological dimension only is only actually effective in, in combination with further guidance, right? And, uh, yes, yes. And that's where it's the most promising, you know, like 88% of people in the MDMA assisted trials have their PTSD completely cured. This is stuff wow. that they've had with them from childhood. And one of the veterans that I was talking to about this who had been on a whole host of medications for a decade, he went through this process and he shared with me some some research and studies that point us towards the fact that it might be closer to 99% of people who, when following the protocol, when working as they should be with a therapist, yep. get cured. So kind of hard to argue with statistics like that, right? Yeah. And and this is still like a very small, this is based on like his research because right now there's so many of us that are approaching this outside of the maps. And this is again, you know, no endorsement. You have to treat your, (laughs) yourself and all this content is like, this is entertainment purposes only (laughs) talk to your doctor, talk to your physician and all that good stuff. But for the first time, we're going to have this culture, I think, that allows individuals to create their own affordable protocol for healing. And where Mm. that's going to lead is not this mass psychosis, but a place where a golden age or a place where these like groups of eight to 13 people are incredibly effective and they're Mm -hmm. going to be able to create multi-billion dollar ventures and, you know, help get us into space. This is the future that I feel like is inevitable once we get wide scale adoptions of the of these medicines. But right. Well, and so on the other side of the revelation that the universe is less malevolent than at first it seemed, like once we get to that midway point, on the other side is presumably the idea of human connections, which is something that present day society, especially in the thrall of technology, I think has some trouble with. Right? You know, completely structure we're more fractured than we've ever been. The idea of family is kind of decimated and atomized and on like that, right? So I think we, we need to relearn a bunch of stuff. Or I think more accurately, we need to, for the first time, potentially design what the new version of that stuff should look like. And we are, I think, in a position to do something with our own destiny that has not been possible before, which is, again, to say, volitionally and consciously design 
new beneficial social structures. Yeah. And I think what's so exciting about this smaller scale of social structure design is that when we get to that small scale, it becomes incredibly voluntary because yes. there's, there's no coercion to get different members to join. And that's exactly, yeah, that's a really, really brand new time in, in human history. John, when you are in LA now, curious to get your, your take on the entertainment industry, do you, do you feel like there are many advancements in that industry or do you feel like you know, Netflix and HBO are just these marginal improvements and we haven't even got to a place where narrative really evolves. Mm, we've re-entered, I guess we've entered a second golden age of television, right? It's generally understood that the kind of hierarchy of value has gone upside down where, you know, cinema used to be the kind of respectable and desirable form and TV was just entertainment. I think most people perceive at this point that especially in the West, especially in the U.S., it's television that is wearing the crown and it's television where the experiments are happening, television where the money is, which is often how you can tell. All of that notwithstanding, it is, it's not clear to me that we've really made advancements in the, let's call you know the, the amalgam of television and movies, whatever that whole thing is, let's call that a, a communications medium. I don't know that it's moved forward. And Peter Greenaway as a director is a highly polarizing figure. So a lot of people have, have problems with his bombast. But his indictment that cinema has never moved beyond the idea that its job is to basically illustrate 19th century novels is one that I subscribe to. That's basically true. For me, as a UI designer, for me, as a cinephile, for me, as a human, that's really frustrating we're not doing new things with what's arguably the most capable medium ever, you know, devised in the days since language and then printing. Here we are, what, 120, 130 years since the inception, since the invention of cinema. And the techniques are, you know, are more sophisticated. The technical techniques are more sophisticated, but we're still kind of telling the same stories. So I don't know what it's going to take to evolve the medium, but I feel confident that it can be evolved, that you know, by the time each of us is 10 years old, we've absorbed that full 130-year history of cinema, and we carry within us an unbelievably powerful language for depicting space and time and trajectories through space and time, but also trajectories through narrative, through you know, emotional right. trajectories, idea trajectories, most importantly of all. And it should be possible, I'm thinking, to get cinema to swallow its own tail. Like, cinema should be able to step on its own head, you know, use the 130 years of kind of digested and compiled language mm -hmm. to do something new. And I don't know quite yet what it looks like, but it's one of the things I'd like to try during my remaining decades here on this rock. Yeah, I think that that's, those are going to be efforts that are very high leverage, to say the least. Yeah. And I think especially with new attempts at getting out of the hero's journey framework is mm -hmm. it's going to be very, very important because that, in a sense, once you en encounter that again and again and again in so many different times, you, you, know, you start to recognize it in your own life, if you look at your life story, or you know, it just appears so often that I think we're just conditioned to think that the world works in this way or that lives work in this way or that great accomplishment works yeah. in this way. When in reality, it's not really the case. And Gerard's point about a lot of these things were went something like, previously, we have all this mythology that is written by the victors. The victors might have mm. been the most violent. And because of that mythology, 
isn't true. What is true uh, are narratives that are written by an innocent victim. That's where we might have a chance to find truth. And as we get to large scale teams that are required to produce many media projects, perhaps mm-hmm. when we go past a team that's too large, we can't help but get mythology. And so mm-hmm. I, I really hope that we can kind of get to a place where we can somehow create these stories where there doesn't need to be a human sacrifice in, or there doesn't right. need to be a seen or unseen human sacrifice in order to launch something that lasts a couple thousand years or wh- whatever the case might be. Right. So Joseph Campbell may have been right about the, the idea of the monomyth here. Just to have this sitting around. All right. There we go. There's good old Joe Campbell. The, the way of the seated earth. The sac- part one, the sacrifice. He may well have been right about the monomyth, but if I understand what you're saying, it, it may be important to escape that hero's journey monomyth. And the only way we can do it is by authoring new myths. Like the, the emergence of the monomyth as a consequence of, let's call it, organically emergent culture uh, doesn't preclude the idea that there, there may be, you know, that it's possible to have modern myths that are maybe more grown up, you know, that, that belong yeah. to more grown up social time. Exactly. Grown up. And then I would say interesting enough and just, just more true to boil it down to a, a very simple standpoint, just more true instead more of true. the... I like that yeah. sensationalized version of events that is that I think Hollywood feels like that they have to lean on in order to get the dollars and get the box office and everything. Because like this, the type of mythology that we have now coming from cinema presents this world that I feel like just stokes, you know, mimetic envy and, and, and hatred and all kinds of bad things because it's inaccessible or because it's, it's uh, well, sensational. Yeah. And it's solipsistic yeah. and effectively it's anti-collaborative because there's Yes. One person at the center of it. Right. So where yes. are the, my favorite of the Grimm's fairy tales when I was a kid were always the, there was a couple, a few of them were the ones where the guy who, of course it's a guy, right. But the guy who didn't have any particular skills of his own, except organizational skills would go around and find the crazy marksman who could, you know, hit a, a leaf at, uh, at 20 miles and, the person who could run incredibly fast and the person who can see incredibly far and put together a team that could do something. So I guess I've been chasing the collaboration thing for a long time, but those ought to be yeah, really I love exciting that. myths. Yes. And I think that the interesting thing about those myths is that because we are these mimetic creatures, they inspire positive mimesis, mm-hmm. which many critics of Gerard's work said was his scapegoat, right. which is he thought that positive mimesis was basically not possible. He kind of welded it onto the side of his theories right at the very end. He was like, oh, well, yes, there can also be positive mimesis. <laughs> exactly. So I think the meta criticism exactly. is that it didn't really quite, you know, didn't merge that gracefully with the rest of his stuff. Nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I want to be cognizant of your time here. You've been very generous. So I will be out in LA. I've debated about it. I've gone on either side of the fence. I think that I'm just going to go go for it with a meeting next week. I have a creative artist agency coming up and then a meeting with the entertainment liaison at one of the large military branches. And this is to discuss an original that I've been working on. I might just take the leap and you know, put on the mask and sanitize and just go for That's it. It's fantastically but, um, exciting. Yes. Yeah. Very exciting. And I'm curious when you are thinking about the right way to create things and get Hollywood involved, you're an expert at this. You, you've had a lot of experience there. Do you still think that Hollywood has a lot to offer? I, I think that there's like, there's so much there with 
CAA and their packages and yeah. how they could help with this specific project that it feels like that's, you know, that's still the epicenter of getting things started. What are your thoughts on that? It absolutely is. There's, there's no question. And actually film production, production itself is starting to return to, <laughs> to Southern California after decades of, you know, tax havens and all sorts of wacky, wacky inducements have caused production to sort of ricochet around the planet. From my point of view, one of the most interesting things is the set of artisans. I don't know if that's the right word, but and the density of artisans who exist here in Los Angeles and, and who serve the entertainment industry. I mean, these, are, these are some of the greatest designers anywhere on the planet in a variety of different, whether it's costume design, set design, production design generally, uh, musicians, just up, up and down the list. So that, that pool of talent, again, when adroitly assembled into a superpowered team is just something you can't do anywhere else. And it's exhilarating. When it works, yeah. it's exhilarating. So that you know, you've got that at the at the ground level where things really count, and then you've got superstructures like CAA that can can help to put things together. So it's still a thing. As the paranoia leaves me, I'm uh, seeing it more more and more in a sense where it's just tremendous opportunity all around us. It's still a golden age of television, and that's where I think like the sweet spot is going to be for these ideas. John, this has been a fascinating conversation. Mezzanine is out now for corporations that are listening. If you have a corporation or large institution and you're interested in collaborating more effectively, where can people go to learn more about Mezzanine? Just go to oblong.com and learn how you can bring your organization into a, a kind of induced hive mind state, which is the place where stuff gets solved. I love it. John, thanks so much for joining us. And if you have any final thoughts, a call to action or a message that you would like to leave our listeners, what would that be? Oh, you throw that in right at the last minute. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's been a great you know, pleasure. Thanks for your time as well. But now I have to come up with a final message. <laughs> I think my final message is I'm really interested in what people think about new organizational structures. You know, the ecstasy of your mind overlapping with another human mind is something that's unsung or undersung, again, in the kind of, you know, one hero at a time, one genius at a time mode that we're in, that we're kind of trapped in for the moment. But think about that thing that happens with your writing partner or your spouse or your best friend, like where you can tell that you're actually temporarily sharing a bit of nervous system, as David Cronenberg would have, would have put it. Those are the things, those are the states that we should develop further and technology plays a role, but not the only role. I love that. Perfect place to end. And John, take care. We hopefully will see you soon. Great pleasure. Thank you. As the founder of a growing media business, there are two things I need. Less worry, leads, and more confidence. It wasn't until I got confident about outsourcing my HR to Trinet that I was able to reduce my worry. Once I reduced my worries about HR compliance, I was able to sleep better, literally. If you want to get more confident with HR, check out Trinet today. Your team deserves a leader who isn't worried about stuff they should be outsourcing to the professionals. Now, I outsource my HR challenges to the professionals at Trinet, and I couldn't be happier. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it.
See you next time.